Hello, welcome to the Co-Design in Publics podcast, a space where we bring together activists, practitioners, and academics to examine and discuss design ideas on the public realm. My name is Juan Subillaga. My name is Asim Inam. And we are your hosts for this episode. For the next few episodes, we will be sharing with you some of the conversations we had in our first Co-Designing Publics International workshop. This workshop took place in May 2021 and brought together a series of network partners around the world to learn from the work they do in their cities. Today, we will be talking to Sokhiep Chak, the Executive Director of the Cambodian Center for Human Rights in Phnom Penh. During the workshop, she told us about the work they do in the country to advocate for the protection of human rights. Today, I want to share about our work and some relevant from our work concerning to the project. First, I will uh, share about what CZXO is doing. CZXO is Cambodian Center for Human Rights. We are the uh, non-governmental organization that work to promote the civil and political rights. Mostly, like I mentioned, um, our core mandate is working to protect human rights defenders and, you know, like we advocate on the respect of the fundamental freedom and other area of work that I will um, say later on. But this is just um, in brief of our mission and uh, vision. As I mentioned, you know, our emphasis on the promotion of democratic space and mainly the civil and political rights. And our vision is that we envision a peaceful Cambodia um, in which Cambodia can enjoy the uh, freedom that they are entitled. And um, we, we want a more rule of law without impunity. And, you know, everyone can be equal under the law and they can say at the benefit from the Cambodian um, sustainable economic development. Recently, CCSO come across to a new strategic plan, so we just finalized. So I'm happy to share our new strategic plan as well for over the five-year course from 2021 to 2025. So um, our strategic objective, uh, including here, you know, the to raise awareness about human rights and abuse so that people are better informed of their rights, as well as to inspire for the full civic participation of all community, but more emphasis on the women, LGBTIQ community, youth and um, underrepresented um, group. We aim to also empower individuals, the community and marginalized group to advocate for their own rights. Concerning the land activists, for example, we have done a lot of capacity building in this aspect so that we can empower the community to claim for their rights. Uh, we denounce the human rights abuse and discrimination of all kinds. So probably you come across a lot to our press release or statement or report that publicize about human rights situation in Cambodia. And we also aim to advocate for justice and to eradicate the um, instant of impunity and um, to also protect the human rights defender, as I mentioned. And we have a um, holistic um, human rights defender protection mechanism in place. For example, we build a pool of lawyers ready when the activists would be at risk. They would be ready to um, support on the case. We also support activists with the security protection, like 
equip them with security camera at home or, or on the car or some other humanitarian support to them and to their family when the activists would be in trouble, you know, like the case of activists would be arrested. So we um, we will provide us a necessary support so that not only the activists, but their family member can survive um, while the main income uh, breeder are in trouble. And finally, we advocate for a legal framework that respects, protects, and fulfills human rights. So we conduct a number of legal analyses to the law that have been harmful to the fundamental freedom, like, for example, cybercrime law, the National Internet Gateway, or the public order uh, law, for example, that we have uh, conduct analysis and advocate for better respect. One of the key aspects of their work is how they focus on core areas where advocacy is most needed. She explained what these core focus areas are. So this is our five-year strategic goal. Mainly, we are aiming to you know, expand and enhance civic space, uh, educate and empower, and uh, protect against human rights violation and uh, force its uh, research and analyze and advocacy. So with all of this uh, strategic goal and objective, we hope that it can fulfill our vision and mission. Over the course of five years, CCXO um, is working on six core focus areas. In brief, you could see the first core focus area, including the protecting fundamental freedom that aim to build the evidence-based advocacy, you know, on the state of fundamental freedom. So over the course of five years, CCXO have documented with a very comprehensive monitoring tool, tracking tool to keep track on how the freedom of expression, assembly, or association have been have been happening in Cambodia. In late April, we just released our fifth annual report on the state of fundamental freedom. And this report has been used as an advocacy tool, not just by CZXO, but by a number of partners, including the embassy when it come, and, and the UN as well, when it comes to the advocacy for better respect of fundamental freedom. Second core focus area is the judicial and legislative reform. Again, like I mentioned, we advocate a lot on the new legislation or existing legislation. For example, we advocate for decriminalization of defamation or incitement, a charge that mostly um, used against activists. Recently, during the COVID time, the government have introduced this emergency law as well as the COVID-19 prevention uh, measure or law related that have been harmful to fundamental freedom, but also give a um, arbitrary um, power to the government to abuse a certain rights. So we advocate again this legislation and offer the government with a proper recommendation to be correspondent with the human rights standard. Secondly, in this uh, core focus area, we do a lot of court monitoring. So we conduct a court monitoring um, mostly at the appeal court because of the um, funding limited as well. Because in Cambodia, we only have one appeal court, but lately the government have introduced few other regional courts. So we have the capacity to monitor this appeal court level and try to ensure that the court respect the fair trial rights. 
The third focus area is the equality and non-discrimination. So CZXO have been working to empower the community like LGBTIQ community or minority group or indigenous group so that they can uh, claim their rights publicly without fear or retaliation as well as for them to enjoy equality um, in the society. Fourth core focus area, which I believe that it may relevant more to our work, is business and human rights. For this um, core focus area, um, we try to support the uh, community affected by the issue linked to corporate sector violation of human rights and um, try to incorrect for a greater respect of human rights among the corporate actor. So we have done a number of empowerment and introduced the concept of business and human rights within the community, including engaging with the government to understand better on this guiding principle and try to hold the business accountable. And, and I will detail that on. <laughs> the fifth uh, core focus area is the civic participation and reform. It, this core focus area is aimed at improving the public awareness about human rights and try to encourage citizens to participate in a civic space. So we do a number of kind of awareness raising. We build the um, human rights education platform so that community can better understand certain rights. So we have really interactive education material like the video clip or the audio as well as the, the text and design a quiz where people especially the youth can be more engaging on the human rights education platform and we use the um, radio in Cambodia radio is uh, a popular mean all those I mean the internet uh, penetration have been increasing and people become more tech savvy but for those who may familiar with Cambodian context you may understand that there's still a digital divide a rural community still rely on radio as a mean of accessing to information so for this, we do a regular radio talk show by engaging a different stakeholder to discuss about certain rights and um, about the role of the government in protecting the human rights of the citizen. And finally, is the research and advocacy and policy here um, is an idea that for us, we try to build a evidence-based advocacy in our work. We conduct a number of reports as an advocacy tool. We believe that we can't just advocate for human rights Blankly, you know, we have to ensure a proper documentation as well as building as an evidence base and with providing a proper and practical recommendation so that the government can apply more, you know, we can um, be more vague in our advocacy as well. In the third section of her talk, Sophia explained in detail the work they do with businesses and human rights and the relationship between human rights violations and issues of land ownership. Like I mentioned, um, the core focus area number four is business and human rights. In this focus area, CZs all work a lot on land and uh, property uh, dispute. In Cambodia, uh, one of the chronic human rights violations happening is land grabbing or forced eviction. So for us, we have been working on this issue since the beginning and we support a number of communities to file the complaint or to um, defend them when the company filed the complaint against them using the basis, for example, defamation or incitement or encroaching the private property, you know, all those, they are the one who own the lands at first. 
So in this area, we also try to look at the labor rights supporting the trade union um, in their advocacy with the garment industry. You know, mostly the working condition is also an issue concerning to the garment workers. So in the business and human rights focus area, we work on this area of land as well as the labor. And we use international human rights uh, mechanism, including the UN guiding principle, in order to advocate for a better respect in the business operation. In the core focus area, business and human rights here, we aim to improve the protection, respect, and remedy of the human rights by the state and corporate actor in connection with the business and human rights. So we hope looking at the forced eviction by the corporate actor should be reduced and state and corporate actor would understand better of their obligation under the guiding principle. And the promotion and protection of the rights related to the conduct of the business, such as the worker rights as well. These are some activities that the CCXO will work, you know, like trying to engage with the corporate through the awareness raising or facilitation of the dialogue between the affected community and company and authority and to engage with the government as well. Uh, similar, you know, by awareness raising education and training to government officials to fulfill their obligation. And we also try to work with the union leader to protect the worker rights. It has been mentioned, I mean, mainly we will try to engage with a different stakeholder, you know, even uh, try to partner with our CSO partner at the local level and work with our beneficiary community to to identify informal local facilitator that can be um, empowered and can be engaged further to claim their rights. Like I mentioned, our core comment that is working on the protection of the human rights defender. So in this area, we also aim to um, support the business and human rights defender to build a network, but also to uh, provide them with the protection mechanism if those people, you know, have been in trouble because of their advocacy. Cambodia's chronic human rights issue is a land grabbing and owing to the fact that, you know, Cambodia have experienced a rapid economic development over the past uh, decades and uh, we have enjoyed the kind of two-digit economic growth at some point and um, finally um, in 2018 we stay at 9% of the growth rate but this growth rate is now slowed down due to the COVID situation as well. So because of this growth it has caused a lot of land price speculation that have resulted in a increase of the land dispute in the country. And um, there have been a lot of cases of urban forced eviction because when there's a land price um, speculation and the economic growth, a lot of demand on the central area, especially urban area. So a lot of slum community or the community who have not able to have their land title documented. And I think there's a long story as well because of the Khmer regime, I mean the genocide regime that have destroyed all the um, documents or have slowed down the process of land titling process. So a lot of community in Cambodia don't have the kind of strong land title. We don't have a, we call um, hard documentation. It's just a very soft that only authorized by the local community not at the um, kind of district level. So it is very vulnerable. So this is problematic and it's very hard to document like proper documentation on the land 
case as well. But the key figure that we can see here, you know, it's, it's very outdated. It is 2014, where more than half a million people have been uh, reportedly involved in land dispute. And um, at least around 5% of the Cambrian total land area have been subject of the land conflict. Over 200 land issues have been reported in a public domain since 2007. And this land conflict, you know, in certain communities, they have fight for their land rights over 10 years. There are very few cases that result into certain success because of the community persistence, but a lot of cases that are still in limbo and community keep fighting over decades. Yeah, so why the land dispute occur in a such scale level? I think um, we have to understand the land management in Cambodia as well. So one of the main cause of the land dispute in Cambodia have been known as uh, because of the um, economic land concession and special economic zone as well, um, that the need for the economic growth, the business corporate have been eye on Cambodia. So there have been a lot of demand for plantation, agricultural plantation or factory. So they demand to clear the land. And uh, a lot of time the government grant to those companies under the form of economic land concession, where the land itself have been not yet demarcated. So it caused the problem with the community, especially it affects a lot to the indigenous community that live in a far remote area. And somehow a lot of cases is not just because of the plantation. I mean, the company who received the economic land concession have claimed that they would do the plantation, like rubber plantation. But in many cases, this is not a real purpose. A lot of time is a deforestation as well. And the special economic zone is another factor as well. You could see 2 million hectares of land have been granted um, through the economic land concession and special economic zone. This have affected a lot to the community, like I mentioned. So this have resulted into the land grab and the forced eviction. For the final part, Sopiep talked in more detail about forced evictions in Cambodia and how this links to the work they currently do. Based on the UN Committee on the Economic and Social and Cultural Rights definition, um, forced eviction is a permanent or temporary removal against the will of individual, family or the community from the home or land which they occupy without the provision of and access to uh, appropriate form of the legal or other protection. So this constitutes as a gross violation of human rights um, law. But in Cambodia, it happened a lot. It has been estimated that between 2003 to 2004, approximately 400K Cambodian, I mean 400,000 Cambodian have been falsely affected. Mostly it is an urban uh, area like, you know, in Cambodia, the prominent uh, forced affection case like Bangkok Lake or Beret that are still for Bangkok case, Bangkok Lake case have been uh, somewhat addressed, but for another eviction case, it is still not yet addressed. Even during the pandemic, you know, uh, all those, the UN special reporter on, I think on land, yeah, and together with some uh, UN special reporter have called out that there should not be a case of people 
people who should be forced out from their home or from their land during the pandemic time because everyone is advised to stay at home. So if this eviction happen, where these people would be and, and how vulnerable they are to the pandemic infections. However, we have documented forced eviction have been continued even during the pandemic. Uh, like this is some of the case that we have documented like in June 2020, there are over 105 family have been forcibly evicted from Phnom Penh. And here in um, another 150 family um, have been evicted as well in Phnom Penh. Some in uh, Simri province uh, where Angkor Wat is located. It is due to the road expansion project that have resulted to certain um, eviction of the community during the COVID time as well. As you could see, the land rights situation and how land conflict and forced eviction happening, what have been CZICs are doing to address all of this problem? Like I mentioned, CZICs all have been working on the land project, especially from the business and human rights framework in the early stage of our establishment. So... We have been working to monitor and conducting research on land um, diffusion in our creation in 2002. Like I mentioned, evidence-based advocacy is, is one of the areas and our strength as well. And we have been working on a recently ended project that we partner with Action Act of Cambodia. Um, we work to strengthening CSO to advocate for increasing respect of human rights by corporate actors in the land sector. So this project has been uh, trying to empower the community to know better of their rights, know better how to conduct advocacy and to bring the dialogue with the authority when it comes to the land abuse. And in this project, we also conduct research on the uh, business remedy uh, to the land conflict. So here, it's just an example in, in our research. We have targeted on the four major corporations based in a different province, like this is in Udo Minjai province. This is in uh, Mundurkiri. It's an indigenous community. And this is in Posak province. And this is in Kokong near Thai border. And a lot of her related to the sugar cane plantation. And you may, I'm not sure you know about blood sugar cases. It named blood sugar case because it results from the sugar cane plantation that the company partner with Thai Metropole um, is a sugar factory that benefit from this uh, sugarcane plantation and they export to the Europe. That's why the community filed a complaint a lot and they have uh, made a campaign called Black Sugar Case. We have conducted a very comprehensive um, research and try to conduct talk with the different stakeholders. We try to talk to get the perspective from the company too, but among the four companies, only one company that are more willing to talk with us and they provide certain data, etc. So it gives a different UA diversified view on the land case as well. So that is how we want to bring the dialogue and uh, bring different perspective on the table and try to advocate with the company to be more accountable based on the business and human rights framework. Stay tuned. After the break, we will have a commentary on CCHR's work by Professor Simon Springer. Thank you.
the theme for me, I was just thinking as you were speaking that it's almost as though the song remains the same in that I first met Overak in 2004 when I was doing my master's degree. And it's the same set of issues that, you know, here, here we are almost 20 years later, and it's the same sort of processes that are playing themselves out. So, I mean, I think it's really just hats off to you and your team for sticking with it for so long. And I mean, I think it's just actually remarkable in a context like Cambodia that you've been around for 20 years now and able to do the work that you're doing. So just incredibly important work and one of the few organizations in Cambodia that has been around for that length of time and has been deeply committed to the process of trying to, I mean, in the theme of what we're talking about in terms of this project, dedicated to making a better public, designing a better public. I mean, effectively, that's the overarching framework of the work that you do. Even though you might not frame it that way, I suppose there is this sort of I guess, in the broadest sense, design element to the work that you're doing and trying to reconvene Cambodian democracy in such a way that is empowering for local people and is critical of the way that corporate influence has manipulated the country in a particular way and the way that the government has been very much on board with that process or, or even facilitating of it. I suppose, in an effort to line the pockets of local elites at the expense of everyday Cambodians. So I guess that's something that Sophia didn't mention is the broader context of Cambodia is that, I mean, unlike what we heard Elisa say, speaking about Indonesia a little bit earlier, in Cambodia, Hun Sen has been in power for 36 years. So there has not been Although ostensibly a democratic country, democracy is a, a very fragile prospect and continues to be to this day that it is very much a, a one-party state in practice, while on paper it looks like a democracy. So there are elections, but those elections, for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways, are almost preordained in terms of their outcome. And in terms of Hun Sen's grasp on power, there's no sign of that uh, coming to an end anytime soon. I think as recently as last year, he was talking about remaining in power till his very much in, into his later life. And there's lots of talk about his eldest son sort of succeeding him in the rule of Cambodia. So yeah, very much democracy is contested, which has a variety of implications for what that means in terms of designing public. And I think so Piep did an excellent job of covering those things. Of course, the free market, and this is where my research has come in, is questioning that transition towards democracy and the aftermath of that since the 1990s and the implications of the free market coming into Cambodia. And of course, that's been a bit of a different beast than it has been in other countries, as to be expected. I mean, that's the geographer in me is to look at the local circumstances and the contextual specificity of of any given process, but specifically I've looked at neoliberalism and that implication of free markets in Cambodia. And it's been very much a kleptocratic process, if you will, that it's not so much about attracting external investors, although there is some of that. Uh, certainly there's a lot of influence from Chinese capital in particular as of late, but a lot of the move to free market has meant that local elites have been able to accumulate more and more capital. And again, at the expense of local Cambodians, a lot of that revolves around, as Sophia made very clear, questions of land and the speculative economy that has evolved in terms of the way that land is viewed in the country and the way that, particularly in urban areas, 
the way that corporate interest is able to maneuver that in ways that are enriching for themselves, but of course, extremely detrimental to those who are evicted, but detrimental to the community at large. I've spoken to many, I mean, it's been a few years since I've been to Cambodia now, and of course, COVID has made it impossible to return, and I don't know when I'll get back, but over the years of doing research in the country, and I've, you know, I've witnessed this in the 20 years that I've been doing work there, the rapid sort of change in the built environment in Phnom Penh and how that has become very gentrified in the urban core and the way that that has pushed everyday Cambodians out. So there's a lot of talk about that. The central core of Cambodia has really become a space for expats or a space for those who are very much of an upper class. And everyday Cambodians, of course, they work in those spaces as tuk-tuk drivers or as local sellers or that sort of thing, but they're increasingly being pushed out of the central part of the city. So it's a question of who is the public for in this kind of ongoing development of Phnom Penh, which involves very violent forced evictions as an ongoing sort of feature of that landscape. A building like the White Building, which is a really famous building that had existed, I think it was first built in the 19, late 1960s or early 70s, and it became, I mean, for if you've been to Phnom Penh, it really stood out as sort of, you knew, if someone said the White Building, you kind of immediately knew what they were talking about, and it became a site where a lot of, I suppose, the from the government's view anyways, it was one of those slum sort of areas that they wanted to gentrify and, and recreate in a particular way, and it became a bit of a flashpoint in the city and not just the building itself, but the land around that, which was waterfront property. There was a new, there was casinos put in, hotels put in in that area. I mean, it was really sort of built in a particular way. And the loss of that community who had, you know, been very strong and resisting these kind of incursions over many years was, I think, a loss for the character of the city itself, right? The heart and soul of the city, if you will. And the stories that people would tell within that space and the kind of connections that they had and the forms of mutual mutual aid that they would use to support each other were, for most folks, I think a very beautiful thing, but from the government perspective and the interest of corporations that what they had a very different vision of the public and, of course, wanted to redesign things in a very different sort of way. Just moving through some of the other things that uh, Sophia mentioned, I mean, civic participation, that's a big aspect of the work that CCHR is doing. And of course, focusing on marginalized groups, emphasizing women, emphasizing LGBTQ communities. So PFU kind of started by saying, well, you know, this is still a bit theoretical for you and a bit abstract in terms of where we're going with the project. But I, you know, as I listen to you speak, I could I could see and and hear all of the sorts of connections of the work that you're doing that I think is very relevant to this larger project. Civic participation is very much an activity that is in the interest of redesigning publics and recreating public and thinking very much about, you know, what it means to to come together as a public and you know, the kind of advocacy work that you're doing that's demanding that greater sense of inclusion and demanding that public spaces are being opened up in ways that enable people to connect and to, you know, live full and meaningful lives within the context of their communities and, and all the sorts of pressures that come down upon them. Uh, which moves to the next part of what you're talking about. Often that the way that these things come down is through the legal frameworks and the rule of law and the way that that has, in a variety of ways, mitigated greater public participation. So as you mentioned, laws on public order and public gatherings and demonstration laws and rules 
of suggesting that demonstrations could only happen at a particular place that's located on the periphery of the city to try and invisibilize the kind of activist work that people were doing or the kinds of demands that they're making of government. And so it raises these broader questions of who is government accountable to, right? If this is a democratic society, who is that government actually accountable to? And the way they operate is certainly not in the interest of the public. It's, of course, in the interest of business and private enterprise. So all of these kinds of questions just raise that greater sort of theoretical question about the right to public space, the right to the public in general, who defines the public, who is able to make claims, and shouldn't we have laws that facilitate a greater sense of public inclusion rather than laws that are extending you know, arbitrary governmental powers that limit and constrict the kind of activities that people can engage in on a daily basis. And so, again, just going through, I mean, you had a list of the various activities that you're involved in. Number one was protecting fundamental freedoms. Number two, judicial reform and court monitoring. Three, equality and non-discrimination. Four, business and human rights and talking about the corporate abuses that are embedded within that. Five, civic participation and reform. And six, research, advocacy and policy work. I could go through each one of those points individually and point out how that's very relevant to the idea of redesigning publics or rethinking the public. I think just the, you know, I I don't know how much time we have, and, and maybe I'll just point to the research and advocacy part of that and the kind of work that you're doing to influence policy that overtly the kind of work that I think we're interested in this project in terms of uh, reconceptualizing what design might be and how greater inclusion and how design can become co-design, something that's participatory and driven from the bottom up rather than a top-down mechanism, which is so often the case in Cambodia. It was such a rich presentation with so many points that I could draw upon. Uh, Another one, radio coming out, and you talked about the importance of radio, which is, I think, very unique in Cambodia, perhaps even in Southeast Asia more broadly, but specifically Cambodia, I think that reliance on radio as a, a means to continue to for the public to gather information that it's you know certainly much more so than Canadian or Australian society today that you talk to young people I don't think you'll find many in in Australia or Canada that routinely listen to the radio while that's probably the older generation does more so in Cambodia but I think it's still you know as you mentioned it's a thing in Cambodia that people use the radio to gather information and the way that that, as a public domain has been circumscribed by the government as well, that it's independent radio in Cambodia is a a very difficult proposition and it's continually subject to various forms of harassment and intimidation and the control of the media in general, whether we're talking about a radio or print newspapers, that's uh, another way in which the public has been cracked down upon, if you will, by the Cambodian government. And it's become worse, I think, in recent years as well. Throughout the 2000s and 2010s, we had English language newspapers like the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post, which were, I suppose, allowed, quote unquote, a certain level of critique of the government because it was English language. And maybe that wouldn't translate across to a lot of, you know, everyday Cambodians from a lower socioeconomic status who couldn't read English and maybe wouldn't that information wouldn't trickle down because the Khmer language media was very much 
controlled by the government. But in recent years, we've seen the government do a 180 sort of turn and crack down upon the Cambodia Daily and the Phnom Penh Post to the point where both of those organizations have been eviscerated and their purpose of getting information out to the wider world has been undermined so dramatically that it's now much more difficult to get information uh, of what's actually going on on an everyday basis within the country, whereas in the past that was much easier. I'll say a few other things that you touched upon in terms of labor rights. I mean, garment factories continue to be one of the biggest employers in the country. And I think in terms of uh, mobilizing a public and the government knows this as well, this is one of the groups that has the potential to mobilize class power in one of the most profound ways because because it is young people, it's young women in particular. And I think a lot of effort goes into breaking up unions or undermining unions and trying to constrain the kind of greater class organization, class power that could be mobilized at that level to reconvene or convene a new public that is more emancipatory and, and in the greater interest of democracy. So labor rights are, as Sophia mentioned, very constricted in the country. The last thing that I noted down was, of course, the question of land rights and, and land activists and the, the way that they have been targeted by the government. Land grabbing, you know, I think is the theme of the last 20 years in Cambodia, 25 years, perhaps forced evictions. It's just part and parcel of the constitution, not, not the constitution in the legal document, but the constitution in the contemporary makeup of Cambodia as a society that it's so systemic, these activities that it's very difficult. And Sophia provided some figures to this as well, that it's very difficult to find Cambodians who haven't been touched in some way by the impacts of forced evictions and this greater process of land grabbing that's going on within the country. And I guess the broader question for our interest in terms of this project, what that kind of private interest means to the greater public good, how that constricts, you know, that privatization is often of state holdings. So in that sense, I suppose, very overtly, supposedly public land, right? These large concessions that Sophia was talking about, this is usually state-held land that is leased off to private companies sometimes for 99 years, which is the legal limit, I think, still in Cambodia of the length that a lease can be held. But it's taking a public resource and turning it, what could be a public resource and turning it over into something that's for private interests. So again, as Sophia mentioned, a lot of that revolves around deforestation. So these concessions are given in the interest of deforestation. This is, of course, in rural areas. And ostensibly, therefore, development such as building a plantation and providing labor, you know, providing jobs to people and these sorts of things. But it's actually actively taking away the forests themselves, which in the greater scheme of humanity are very important in terms of the larger process of climate change. But even on a, a national level within the context of Cambodia, the importance of those resources for future generations and the way that that's taken away, the way that it, livelihoods are taken away through these process of cordoning off large tracts of what is effectively public land in the interest of private enterprise. And of course, then there's that same question playing itself out in the context of cities and the way that the speculative economy works there. So Pia pointed to coastal areas in particular, and so Sihanoukville and, and the process that's happening there, the designation of particular coastal areas in Sihanoukville as key development zones, 
and how that would spark rather than, you know, if you were to look at this as in the most sort of generous way possible, you could look at their designation as, oh, this is a, a designated as a development zone. This is going to help everyday Cambodians. But in practice, what happens is that sort of kicks off that greater speculation. And Sihanoukville has certainly been, which is a coastal city, certainly subject to this in, in some of the worst ways that there's been communities that have been completely moved off their land to make way for hotels and, and various sorts of tourism enterprises that have no real sort of meaning in their everyday lives. And it's just to facilitate that sort of, I guess, sort, sort of foreign gaze and foreign intervention within Cambodia without really thinking about what does that mean for the local public and how is that going to impact upon their lives. So that's some of the work that I was doing in the early 2000s was with communities in Sihanoukville who had gone through forced eviction and had spent, it's a community in particular that I revisited many times and found them year after year after year living along the street, you know, the unpaved road that near the land that they formerly lived on, which in that particular instance was speculated on to build a hotel. But then the, you know, in 2008, the global economy sort of, well, didn't fully collapse, but it it took a bit of a nosedive. And that speculation didn't come to fruition and yet those people were still made to be removed from that land and live along a corridor of dusty road right next to the land they were formerly living on with no sort of concession from the government or realization that this wasn't a sustainable or long-term sort of solution to the lives of these individuals. So there's all these sort of nuanced questions that continue to play themselves out in Cambodia that resonate with the larger question of how could we redesign the public in a way that's more facilitating of a wider good rather than development in the interest of very particular individuals, corporations, sectors of government, if you will. Final thing that I put a note on, which I thought was an interesting point, and and Sophia just touched upon briefly was Bonkak Lake, which maybe some of you are not super familiar with, but it's one of the sort of I think textbook examples of how public design has gone horribly wrong in the context of Phnom Penh. This was a lake that formerly there were a lot of really a vibrant community around that lake and it became subject to, you know, the speculative economy in Cambodia and in Phnom Penh in particular. And the entire lake was filled in with the idea of putting up large, you know, skyscrapers and whatever on it, pure speculation. And of course, what happened as a result of filling in that lake is now Phnom Penh was already a city that was subject to flooding, but that made that process infinitely worse after that lake was filled in. The amount, the volume of water that comes into the city, you know, that lake formerly served as sort of a reserve where the water could drain into, but now it just fills the streets. And in terms of what that means to everyday lives and the the sense of responsibility to the public, the government demonstrated very clearly that they weren't even taking that into consideration, that their design principles were fundamentally to facilitate that speculative economy and for certain individuals within the government to effectively enrich themselves in that speculative process, while the entire public of Phnom Penh is now subjected to flooding that 
is an inconvenience in terms of transportation for sure, but is also an inconvenience in terms of the damage that it does to people's homes, the damage it does to their bicycles, their tuk-tuks, their, their motorbikes. There's all kinds of implications that come out of that. And it's just, I think, a really good example of, of where things could be moved in a different direction if only the government could realize that the public good isn't tantamount to private interest, right? That facilitating development in such a way that is facilitating or greasing the wheels of neoliberalism, as I would say, or or facilitating that free market sort of incursion into the country, it's just not taking into account the greater public good. And so that's it. That becomes a design question, right? That becomes a, it becomes a legal question, as Sophia mentioned. It becomes a question about democracy, but it certainly becomes a question about design and who is doing the designing. If we're thinking of design in terms of the built environment, if we're thinking of that in terms of policy, but it's these it encapsulates this larger question of designing publics in the context of Phnom Penh. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified when we release a new episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at CodesignPublics or Instagram at CodesigningPublics. This podcast is part of the Codesigning Publics Research Network, a project funded by the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council and hosted at Cardiff University.